Welcome to the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. My name is Dr. Stefano Bini and I will be your host. For this new season, bring you the best talks from the DocSF Experience 21. After our previous discussion about AI and bias, we turned our attention to applied AI, places where AI or subgenres like natural language processing and machine learning were having a positive impact on healthcare and MSK delivery. This is a slightly longer podcast, so we apologize, but it includes two speakers and their combined Q&A. All in all, it's a really great segment. Our speakers are Gretchen Purcell Jackson, MD, VP, and Clinical Science Officer at IBM Watson. She's gonna talk about cognitive support and cognitive analytics. And then we have Amelia Galen, CEO of RobinHealthcare.com, a virtual scribe company. We're gonna talk about natural language processing and where we are in that industry. Let's join them on the DocSF virtual stage. Thank you so much for the opportunity to speak at the 2021 Digital Orthopedics Conference on the topic of cognitive computing or artificial intelligence in healthcare. Today, I'm going to give you a very quick overview of artificial intelligence applications in healthcare, and I'll try to address some of the myths and the fears that are common when we talk about AI in healthcare. Before I get started, let me address my conflicts of interest. I'm an IBM executive, primarily in a scientist role, and I also still practice pediatric surgery part-time at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. I will be discussing IBM products, so I have a financial conflict of interest as well as personal biases. I probably won't be discussing the surgery that I'm paid to do at Vanderbilt, but if I do, I also have a financial conflict of interest as well as personal biases. And in either case, I will manage my conflicts by supporting the statements that I make with scientific evidence or at least verifiable facts. So let's start with some level setting. What is artificial intelligence or AI, which some people call cognitive computing? Artificial intelligence is a term that's used to describe intelligence demonstrated by machines or computer programs that mimic human intelligence or cognition. Most contemporary artificial intelligence programs use something called machine learning, which are programs that perform a task without explicit instructions. Now, early computer programs functioned by following the exact commands that they were given by a computer programmer, but machine learning algorithms actually build mathematical or statistical models based on the patterns that they find in the data they process. And they use those models to do things like classification, finding key steps in the video of a surgical procedure, or finding specific findings in radiographic images, or they can predict things like the risk of infection after surgery or the risk of readmission after hospitalization. Now, the details of these computer science techniques that are employed by cognitive computing systems are beyond the scope of this talk, but most of the key functionalities that you will see in something that people call artificial intelligence are the capacity to understand, to reason, to interact, sometimes in human-like ways using conversational technologies, and most importantly, to learn and to improve their performance over time. Now at IBM, we believe that the best AI is something we call augmented intelligence, which combines the strengths of humans and machines. So humans are good at things like common sense. Most most humans are good at common sense, or problems that require moral judgments or showing compassion. And humans are particularly good at using their imagination. 
Machines, on the other hand, are good at identifying patterns or locating knowledge quickly, especially in large data sets. And machines are less susceptible to cognitive or unconscious biases that can occur in their judgment, although it is certainly the case that data sets and algorithms can contain or that they can create bias depending on how they're used. And most importantly, I think in clinical medicine, machines don't get tired. So the best AI is one that combines what humans and what machines do well. Now, it's a really common misconception that artificial intelligence is actually a new or an emerging technology, and it's not. Artificial intelligence was actually established as a discipline in computer science in the 1950s. And today, there already exist AI tools for a wide variety of the stakeholders in the healthcare ecosystem. And some of you may actually have interacted with them. So there are artificial intelligence tools for healthcare providers that offer clinical decision support, such as helping you prescribe antibiotics or thrombosis prophylaxis to adhere to surgical quality guidelines. There are tools for healthcare payers that can detect fraud in claims databases or identify drivers of cost in healthcare systems. There are tools for the purchasers of healthcare, like chatbots that can help consumers choose the best health benefits plan. I'll show you an example of that later. There are tools for policymakers. These have been particularly important during the pandemic that can help predict the value of a, or the effects of a particular program or initiative, like predicting what will happen if people wear masks or adhere to social distancing guidelines. There are tools for life sciences companies that can help identify targets for drug development or optimize clinical trial design, which can accelerate that regulatory approval process for things like drugs or devices. And then there are tools for patients that can help identify trends in their data, such as data from wearables, and may help them do things like manage chronic diseases. So many of you may be rightfully skeptical of artificial intelligence or cognitive computing tools. And I will say that it is the truth that few have gained traction in everyday hands-on practice. So if they're being introduced into your practice or even used by your patients, you might ask whether they work and how you would know. And that's actually a really good question. So as most of you know, when drugs or devices, medical devices that you probably commonly use in your practice are introduced, there are multiple studies that are done by the Food and Drug Administration that have to be done and are approved before those tools are introduced into practice. But for most artificial intelligence, especially that which is used to assist but not replace doctors, that type of artificial intelligence is actually not regulated. So the studies often aren't done. And while I'm not a big advocate for more regulation, I will say that I do believe it is a professional and an ethical responsibility for anyone who develops AI tools for healthcare, whether it is done in industry or developed at academic medical centers, to do the scientific studies that ensure that they can be introduced safely and effectively in healthcare practice. And one thing that's particularly important for the adoption of anything in medicine, but something like AI is trust. And as you know, as physicians, trust is built in medicine with scientific evidence. But what does that scientific evidence look like for health information technologies? So this is a simple framework for the scientific evaluation of any 
health information technology, including artificial intelligence tools. And for you and I and our patients and families to trust AI, we must first show that the tools or the algorithms technically do what they're supposed to do, such as if they classify things or predict risks, that they do so accurately. When we know that the tools technically do what they're supposed to do, we want to make sure they can be used by their intended users and that they actually can be used within the often complex clinical workflows. And finally, when we know the tools technically do what they are supposed to do and they can be used by their intended users, we want to show that they have an impact on health, such as saving lives, reducing costs, reducing infection, or any number of things. Now, when AI tools are first introduced, we often look at the proximal or process outcomes, such as do clinical decision support tools change decisions? And it is only later with time that we can look at long-term outcomes, such as do they improve clinical outcomes, such as survival or recurrence or costs. Now, when we evaluate artificial intelligence tools, we must do so systematically in the order that is shown on this slide to avoid confounders. And when AI tools are introduced, you know, often early, clinicians are usually quick to say, well, where is that randomized control trial that shows that this works or that it has an impact? And randomized control trials are certainly a long-term evaluation goal. But if you don't know if the tool works technically and you don't know that it can function in a real clinical workflow, then if you do a randomized control trial, you are setting yourself up to fail. Repetition of this process is also particularly important. So if you have a tool that uses an AI technique like natural language processing to say, understand clinical notes, a tool that works really well on primary care or pediatrics notes may not actually work well on notes written by an orthopedic surgeon or rheumatologist. So whenever conditions change or the use case of your tool changes, this process needs to be repeated. And this is particularly true for AI tools that learn and change their performance over time. So I hope that this gives you a general idea of what science around artificial intelligence looks like. Now, this sequential approach or this framework can be compared to what you're probably familiar with um, for the drugs or devices that you use in your practice. I mean, there are similarities, but there are also important differences in this framework. So the preclinical phase or phase zero trials for AI involve developing prototypes and doing early proof of concept algorithm evaluation. Phase one testing for safety and efficacy involves expanded algorithm evaluation on robust clinical data sets, as well as usability testing on prototypes. In phase two, AI tools are put into real clinical setting and evaluated for performance, usability, and integration into that clinical workflow. And here, AI tools differ from drugs and devices, which tend to function in a relatively predictable manner, whereas the output of an AI tool, something that predicts risk, say for infection or for something like suicide, must be understood, it must be trusted, it must be contextualized, and then actually used by human beings, which can be highly unpredictable. So phase three clinical trials are the phase three trials. Those are the usual randomized controlled trials that you are familiar with. And these are the studies that definitively measure impact. Here, it's really important when you evaluate an AI tool to choose the right comparator. So many people love the drama of human versus machine. And at IBM, we are probably partially responsible for that in our Jeopardy work. However, 
when you are taking an AI tool and putting it into a medical setting where it is supporting a doctor but not replacing a doctor, then you want to do a study that evaluates that clinician with and without the support, not do a study that hits human against machine. Finally, AI tools need continuous monitoring for performance, um, and they can change their performance, as I mentioned, over time based on a wide variety of factors. It may be changes in the underlying data, changes in the target population, or the population in which the tool is applied, or it can be changing as the algorithm learns over time. And I hope this framework gives you, again, the, an idea of the types of evidence that you might need and should look for when you're introducing cognitive computing solutions into your practice. So in the next part of the talk, I'd like to talk about a few AI applications in healthcare, and I'll describe some of the evaluations that my team has done to show their performance and impact. And in this part of the talk, I'll be discussing some IBM products, which I obviously have a conflict of interest. And so again, to address that, I will be showing you visual abstracts with references to published scientific studies that support the statements that I make with scientific evidence. So what's one of the biggest problems in delivering healthcare? This is a problem that I've been addressing for my whole career. The science of medicine is rapidly evolving. It is growing exponentially. And medical knowledge is estimated to double every 73 days. One article is published in Medline every three minutes. And I don't know about you, but I definitely can't read that fast. So I know that there is scientific evidence that I should be using in my practice for the patient that is right in front of me, but it is incredibly difficult to keep up. So one of the scientists on my team at IBM developed AI algorithms to help process that medical literature and identify articles that are relevant to a particular patient. And he did this for a field where the literature is expanding incredibly rapidly, and that is in the space of cancer care. And he was able to show that his algorithms were able to identify articles that were scientific articles, comparative effectiveness research that was relevant to the patient right in front of him with 93% accuracy, 95% sensitivity, and 91% specificity. And tools like these can help bring relevant evidence to the point of care and decision-making. And the work about this algorithm was just published recently in JCO Clinical Cancer Informatics. What's another common problem in healthcare? Adverse drug events. Adverse drug events are common and they're costly. They occur in 2 million hospital stays each year. And when they occur at home, they cause 3.5 million office visits, 1 million emergency department visits, and 125,000 hospital admissions a year. So having evidence and guidelines to support drug prescribing that is easily accessible and at the point of care may help address this important problem. So one of the tools we have is Micromedics. It is a rich pharmacological knowledge base with drug monographs, practice guidelines, and patient information sheets about drugs and drug prescribing. It can be accessed through a standard keyword search or to make information, finding that information easier through a conversational agent called Watson Assistant, which supports people asking questions in natural language. And this screen shows Watson Assistant being used to find an answer about thrombosis prophylaxis. So in the first few months after we released Watson Assistant for Micromedics, 
we examined the accuracy of those conversations and found that Micromedics was able, to, the conversational agent for Micromedics was able to correctly connect the user with an answer in 80% of the questions that were in scope and about two thirds of the questions that were not in scope. And this is actually quite good performance given that somebody can type anything they'd like to into a conversational agent, such as, you know, where's my car or what does the fox say? And one of the things we saw with this conversational agent is that the conversational agent compared with questions that were posed through the keyword search actually seemed to have a broader array of topics, um, suggesting that the conversational agent was enabling richer questions or richer conversations. And this work was published in Jamia Open earlier this year. Now, conversational agents that use artificial intelligence techniques of natural language processing and natural language understanding are actually really common. They're common inside and also outside of healthcare. Um, they're especially common in customer service, and you probably have used a conversational agent if you have called your cable company or called your bank for customer service reasons. So the COVID-19 pandemic created an explosion of health-related questions, and IBM leveraged its Watson Assistant platform for developing conversational agents for a wide variety of industries to automate conversations which addressed health-related questions. And on this slide, you see an example of a conversational agent that was developed by the state of Michigan, which answered common questions about COVID-19, such as how does it spread or can you get it from services? And this is a really great example of using artificial intelligence to automate a task to address a common need, such as answering questions and answering questions from thousands of citizens. And, you know, we have from our data usage seen that this particular agent was used by about 2,500 people per day. So this addressed and automated a task that was common and also possibly tedious, just answering the same questions over and over again, but left humans in the Department of Health and Human Services available for tasks that required that human touch, such as showing compassion or showing empathy. Now, here's a fun fact. So Watson Assistant is actually something that you can use for free. So you can go to cloud.ibm.com and you can set up an account today and actually use Watson Assistant to develop your own conversational agents. It's actually quite easy. You do not need to be a computer scientist to set up simple chatbots. And you can do this for up to 10,000 messages and 1,000 users per, per month. So it is a, an AI technology that you can actually experiment with. During the COVID-19 pandemic, IBM, as part of its corporate response to the pandemic, made Watson Assistant available for free for enterprise solutions. And it actually provided support to help develop conversational agents to address a wide variety of COVID-19 health-related questions. So IBM supported governments, as you just saw, in answer, answering citizen questions about the virus or about new and changing healthcare policies. It helped employers answer employee questions about how to work from home. It helped provider organizations, healthcare organizations like hospitals or clinic, answer questions from patients and families about how they could get healthcare safely. And it helped health plans answer beneficiary questions about new COVID health-related benefits. So over 100 different institutions used Watson Assistant to build conversational agents in the early COVID-19 pandemic. 
and most of them were able to launch them very quickly in a matter of a couple of days through a few weeks. Um, there were 37 organizations that shared data with us, and they were able to deliver over 6.8 million messages between March and August of 2020. Uh, of 2020. Um, and you can read about this effort in a paper that we published in the Journal of the American Medical Informatics Association at the end of last year. So to change gears a little bit, let me show you an example of an AI solution for the payer market segment for organizations that provide health benefits, such as insurance companies or many large employers who are responsible for providing health insurance to their employees. Now, to most people, health benefits are actually really complicated, and most people are overinsured. So when you go and pick a health benefits plan and open enrollment, I know I, you know, initially would just pick the most expensive plan, figuring it gave me the best coverage. I was getting the Cadillac and that's not actually the case. So Benefits Mentor is a data-driven clinical decision support tool for healthcare consumers like you and me. We're, we may be providers, but we're also consumers. And it helps us select the most cost-effective healthcare plan by asking questions based on who is going to be covered by this, as well as estimating the costs that people may have in their healthcare. And it uses analytics to analyze prior claims data, either of the beneficiary themselves or people like them, to predict what the cost will be. And it helps people choose the plan that is most effective for them. And this tool was offered by a large employer and used by two-thirds of its employees in the first year that it was launched. And nearly all of them who used the tool actually went on to select the plan that was most cost-effective for them. And often, this will be a high-deductible plan, even for generally healthy people, but also for people who have a few medical problems. And enrollment in the this consumer-driven health plan, the one predicted to be most cost-effective, actually increased over time with use of this tool. Finally, many of you know there are actually a wide variety of artificial intelligence or cognitive computing tools that are used by patients. One solution that IBM developed in collaboration with Medtronic is something called Sugar IQ, which takes continuous glucose monitoring data from type 1 diabetics and it generates actionable insights to help patients manage this disease. So on this slide, you can see some screenshots that show how glucose trends based on eating a chicken taco or waffles are used to predict what may happen with glucose levels or trends that occur based on a certain time of day. Now, Early in the development of this tool, we took data from 10,000 type 1 diabetics and used that to train and predict the algorithms that went into the tool. And what we were trying to do is be able to predict hypoglycemic or low blood sugar events. And the model actually is able to do that, was able to do that with 90% accuracy, with 80% of those predictions being able to be made within one hour in advance of the event. And this work was presented at the American Diabetes Association in 2019. Now, the team, one hour is not a long time to respond to a potentially serious medical event. So the team has worked to tune this algorithm and extend the time horizon and has subsequently shown that the algorithms are actually able to predict hypoglycemia with 90% accuracy with a two to three hour window in advance of the event. And people who used this system actually spent an extra 36 minutes a day in a safe glucose range, showing a clinical impact. 
So I hope this overview has helped you better understand AI or cognitive computing and illustrated the rich array of AI tools that are available for a variety of stakeholders in the healthcare system. And I hope I have given you a little information about how to evaluate these tools scientifically so you can trust them as they are introduced into your clinical practice. I do believe there is great promise in the potential for humans and machines to, to collaborate, to revolutionize, and to improve health and healthcare delivery. I've enjoyed the opportunity to speak at this conference, and I look forward to answering your questions at the question and answer session. Hi, my name is Emilio Galan. I'm one of the co-founders here at Robin. It's a pleasure to join you at the DocSF 2021 conference. I've been given the task of talking through how some of the latest technologies being used within the exam room. It's assisting providers every day with day-to-day practice. There is a whole category of vendors using AI, ML, and natural language processing to achieve that end. One example is Robin and the Robin Assistant. This is a device placed in the exam room that captures audio and video to produce things like documentation, codes, and help with other administrative tasks. I'm going to answer three questions over the next 20 minutes. The first is, how good is the underlying AI? How good are these models and exactly how artificial is the intelligence that are being used within this, these solutions? It's important for us to have a common baseline so we can know what to expect uh, moving forward with these tools. Number two is what are the kinds of problems that we're trying to solve with these solutions? And really, what are the most important areas to focus on uh, to drive the most value? And then thirdly, how do they perform in the real world? What are real results that we're seeing with the deployment of these solutions? And uh, specifically, we're going to look at one key example, very timely, ENM 2021 coding performance and how it's been doing over the last four months. So let's start with automatic speech recognition. This is essentially how effectively we can take words that are spoken and convert them into text. Now take a look at this graph here that I've got and then all the way to the left. We're looking at percentage error rate of the best performing ASR models over time. Starting in around 2013, we're looking at just under 20% word error rate. That means out of 100 words that are spoken, 20 of them are incorrectly transcribed. That performance stays more or less plateaued until around 2016, when we start seeing a rapid improvement in the word error rate performance of these models. And really what changed there is the use of deep learning. Now, the last model here on this graph is the Wave to Vec 2.0 model. I'm going to talk about that one in particular. At the July 2020 NeurIPS conference, the Facebook AI team presented the Wave to Vec 2.0 model, boasting an 8.3% word error rate. That's great. It was benchmarked on the Timit dataset, which is a general dataset used to compare the performance of these models against one another. And that's within the general speech recognition space. What matters for us in this room, or at least in this virtual space, is how this performs in the medical conversations or within the medical domain. This month, April 2021, Google so happened to release the latest performance for their model trained specifically for medical conversations. Now, the word error rate of that model was 20%. So what gives, Emilio? You said last, last year was 8.3% uh, with the wave to back 2.0 model, and then this model performing at 20%. And there are three things to keep in mind within the medical conversations. The first is that we're using medical vocabulary. 
obviously specialized terminology. The second is that within the exam room, now just picture it for a second, you've got multiple speakers. You've got the patient, the doctor, physician assistant, the nurse, caregivers, and the more speakers you have, the more complex the ASR challenge is. And then thirdly, you're using typically a far field uh, microphone. Certainly we do in Robin's case. And that means that the microphone is farther away from the speakers instead of something like having your phone or a dictaphone. All three of those things contribute to the word error rate performance and the worst performance in this particular case. Now, let's switch gears just for a second. I want to touch briefly on computer vision. Computer vision is used in all kinds of applications, self-driving cars, robotics, drones, etc. Within the medical domain for devices that have cameras or sensors like ours, it can be useful in determining the movement within exam rooms, specific identification within the exam room. And this specific model I'm going to look at is looking at gait. Essentially, someone walks across the camera and it's trying to classify, was that a Parkinsonian gait, a post-stroke gait, or a healthy gait? And this model performs around 71% accuracy. That's more or less in line with other models like it. Let's talk about what this means. Is Skynet upon us? Is Dr. Google here knocking at our door? No, these tools are still assistive. That is a key takeaway I hope that you walk out with is that the tools today are assistive. We're still getting one out of every five words in medical conversations incorrectly transcribed. There is likely, depending on how complex the task is, a human in the loop. And depending on the complexity, either that human is built into the service, certainly that's the case with many of the AI scribe uh, vendors today, or it's you, the physician, correcting it at the end of the day. And so the question for us is how do we use these tools? How do we leverage these models to drive the most value? And we don't believe that it's using it to diagnose fractures on uh, imaging and x-rays more effectively than physicians or building a better diagnostician. Our philosophy is that the best application of these tools today is to get the administrative distractions out of the way of physicians so that they can practice at the top of their license and use all of the expertise that they've gathered over their training to provide the best patient care possible. And that brings us to this graph. Every single presentation I do, this graph shows up somewhere because it is so effective at illustrating the situation we're in in this country and our healthcare system. Look at the bottom of this graph here, that blue line. That's the number of physicians, doctors in the US system over the last 50 years, increasing very, very steadily. The pink explosion behind it is the number of administrative staff, FTEs, in the system over that same time course. The hard red line is our spend over that period, of course, increasing an astounding 2,300%. Now, what is so troublesome about this graph is that when we talk to our physicians, they're telling us that they're working harder and they're taking home less money. This increase in payment, increase in spend is not going to patient care. It's not going to the doctor's pockets. It's not going to curing cancer. It is largely going to administrative waste. And so it is key for us to understand where this administrative waste has come from. And to do that, we need to walk through the decades here. So 1980s, lawyers essentially start doing lawyery things and are scrutinizing care decisions in the court of law. The number of medical malpractice uh, cases is skyrocketing and they're putting docs on the stand saying, 
Prove to us that you had that risk benefits alternatives discussion that you talked about the risks of the numbness, the bleeding, the reoperation, the hyperpigmentation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Prove it to us that you actually did that. 1990s is really the inflection point. If there's one uh, key decade, it's the 90s. And that's where CMS essentially is looking at their graph of spend saying, we got to do something about this. And they in the 19, 1991, introduced the precursor to the RBU. Many of us in this room know intimately. And they followed that up in 1994 with a series of high-profile fraud and abuse cases. The outcome of those cases is the mantra, if you didn't document it, it didn't happen. Overnight, the medical record, the clinical note, your output of documentation became an invoice and a protection against audit. It increased in length and decreased in value for its original purpose, clinical care. That's followed up in the 2000s with uh, quality programs and uh, value-based care initiatives where you have to report uh, different quality measures to prove that you're a quality physician. And in the 2010s timeframe, we really see the biggest and baddest wolf, really the worst invention of all, which is prior authorization. And the, what makes this so egregious is that it is the furthest that payers have gone in actually interfering with care. Before you do that surgery that you think is needed, you need to prove to us that it's justified. You have to prove to us as the payer and your peers to get it approved uh, and authorized. And that brings us to our modern day ratio of one physician to about eight administrative staff within the system leading to that increase in spend. What's the problem here? We categorize all this as prove it, those two words. It's not enough to provide care, you have to prove it. Prove it in the court of law, prove it for payment, prove it against audit, and prove it before you even provide care. So how have practices responded to this prove it problem? Well, first things first, doctors work harder to say, well, I'm a doc. I'm used to grinding. I did 80 hours a week in residency and they burn the midnight oil. They're spending pajama time on the computer, getting all of that documentation into the EMR. But they have done time studies to do all of the care and the prove it uh, associated with it. It would be 23 hours a day of work. It is not possible. Let's take a deep breath here. It's not possible to do all of this as a single person. You said to let that dream go. So we hire staff and lots of them, MAs, PAs, CLs, DIs, all kinds of acronyms to help with this task. And that's expensive. So we had ancillary services from imaging, uh, MRIs, to DMEs, to PT, to procedures. And then when that's not enough, we just pull the ripcord, we consolidate. And there's been lots and lots of consolidation over the last uh, five decades. In 1980, we had 75% independent physicians. In 2020, we're looking at 35%. After COVID, it's going to be really hard to say. The jury is still out. In some markets, we're down to about 15% independence. And of all of the specialties, orthopedics is the number one most independent specialty left, floating around the 60-70% line. Now, how have they been able to do that? Essentially, they've diversified their revenue streams with these ancillary services. About 25% of the revenue comes from ENM. 15% from imaging, 15% from PT, OT, other therapies, then 45% coming from procedures, whether that be in-office procedures like injections or surgeries within ASCs or inpatient. Now, the problem is each of these revenue streams, each of these services has additional proven. 
And so out of every single exam room, we have what we call the prove it assembly line. That's made up of coders, charge entry folks, builders, authorizers, collectors, on and on and on. And if you follow that assembly line all the way back to the beginning, to where it starts, you find the doctor in the exam room on the EMR. The problem here is that the rules that govern the prove it assembly line are constantly changing. And every time there's a rule change, you got to go retrain every single person on this assembly line. And the rules are intended to increase friction. And so you're training each person and you have to go all the way back to the doctor and try and retrain them. Hey, the MDM rules just updated again. Hey, such and such payer had updated the utilization management requirements for that surgery. We need to make sure that that template's in. And the doctor, understandably, has had enough. I went to medical school. I did residency. I did fellowship. I do CME every year. I know how to practice medicine. Can you just get off my back? And then we've got to sympathize with the administrator, that admin staff who's saying, listen, the worst part of my job is going to you and asking you to write more documentation and give me more proven materials. But you got to understand, we're engaged in administrative warfare out here. We're trying to stay afloat. We're trying to collect and we're trying to keep the practice running. We just need, can you just please check that box? Can you just follow that checklist? Do you mind just using this template? So what we need to do is get the doctor off the assembly line. We got to find a way. We got to get them out of the proven problem. We can't expect them to dictate everything that's needed for this prove it assembly line. We can't expect them to keep all of the rules in their head while they're trying to do their job, which is provide the best care possible. And what that means is we have to get the data out of this room without depending on the provider to plug it in to the EMR. And there's that whole category of vendors that I talked about that are leveraging those models we discussed earlier to do just that. You've got AI scribes, digital scribes, virtual scribes, ambient experiences, AI clinical decisions, all kinds of things. And essentially what we're doing, and I can speak from experience from Robin's perspective, is trying to take this data, the audio and the video, trying to ambiently produce documentation and codes so this provider can just forget about prove it. And they can focus entirely on patients. They can do what we would want to experience as patients, eye contact, focused, not back turn, working on the computer, but actually engaged as the provider that we want. Now I'm going to take a little bit of a segue here and talk about the three kinds of provider workflows we see when you deploy something like Robin into the exam room. And we've categorized our providers into three archetypes. The first is the minimalist. And the minimalist is a doc that walks in and just completely focuses on the patient. They have a natural conversation, and then they walk out. They don't do anything for us. They don't dictate anything. They don't write anything down. And they're typically docs that are months behind in, in clinical notes and signing off. They are typically folks that have great rapport with the patients. And they're a group that we love to work with and provide that experience. The other end is the biographer. This is a doc, no matter what you tell them, they're going to dictate the whole thing. They're going to do a full narrative soap note. And you say, listen, you don't need to do that anymore, right? We can get most of this off of the natural conversation. It doesn't matter. They're just accustomed to the dictaphone and they're going to do it. And that's okay. We can work with that. And then in the middle, you have the optimizer, which mostly is focused on having that natural conversation. But if there's something that they really want to mention word for word, they'll say, hey, Robin, 
and typically do about 45 seconds of a summary at the end. Now, a key area of focus for us is producing billing codes so that's not on the plate of the physician. And I'm going to talk about real-world experience. I promised that at the very beginning. And E&M 2021, I'm sure something that we all know and love at this point. So the biggest update to the E&M codes happened this year in January. And after 24 years, more or less, of using the same rules. And what we wanted to do and make sure is that our performance uh, was up to snuff. So we hired an external auditor to come in and look at a healthcare organization control group. So that's groups that use us and have some documents and notes still being produced without Robin and some physicians in that control group. And then the Robin intervention group, these are physicians at those HCOs who are using Robin every day to produce the codes. And here are the results. So in January, what we saw is that Robin's performance around 10% code error rate. That means out of 100 codes that we produce for 100 encounters, E&M code specifically, about 10 of them were wrong. And that's double what we were targeting, right? We want to see every code that comes out of Robin's system, at least 95% accurate or less than 5% code error rate. And we saw that happen over time. So both in March and in April, we've been well below the 5% threshold. And that's just exactly where we want to be. In the control group, we've seen around 43% average code error rate. And that's across different organizations and over time and consistent with natural, national averages, which I'll get into in just a second here. What's most exciting about the results here is that in March, we did have a 0% code error rate. And what that means for us is that there is a possible future where we get to 100% accuracy. Now, if we can get there as a system, right, regardless of who produces the actual models to do it, it could mean we no longer need to fight, right? Payers, providers, agree these are accurate codes. We don't need to do all the fraud and abuse case run around. We just can agree that the codes are accurate from the beginning, get paid and move on. Here's those national measures that I, national performance that I mentioned. This is the CMS comprehensive error rate testing, the CERT program. And they were looking at improper payments specifically for E&M codes. And they're talking about billions of dollars in improper payments. Just want to mention two things here. The most common reasons for these improper payments were incorrect coding, and insufficient documentation and say significant money value to CMS. So let's touch back to why are we here? This is our touchstone, our purpose, our reason for being. We need to rewind the clock here. We got to get all of these prove it steps out of the physician's way one by one. So we can arrive in a 2020 decade with docs who are focused on patient care, patients who get the undivided attention of their providers and the prove-it requirements, which can't just be ignored, right? That data still needs to come out of the exam room, but can be done using vendors like the ones we talked about uh, during the session and done hopefully more accurately so we can start to actually decrease the cost associated with proving. So thanks so much. I'm happy to answer any questions during the Q&A session. I appreciate you joining me on this journey. My God, that was outstanding. We had hoped to give people in the first segment an overview of AI and understanding where bias came in and then show how it can actually be used, where AI actually has been successful. And you guys both gave us a tremendous oversight on how that has played out. 
it's clearly been evolution and we know it's going places. We're not going to be static. This is a uh, ongoing process. So thank you, Dr. Jackson, for being with us today. And thank you, Emilio. My pleasure. Thanks, Stefan. So yeah, it's been exciting. So let's just start with the Q&A. We are now at a bit of an intersection. We were talking with Emilio a little bit earlier that we're going into a brand new, brand new moment when it comes to the coding. And we're going to go into a very complex time for healthcare systems physicians to understand how to document and charge for the work that we do. AI seems perfectly suited for this. Can we talk about this? Why would AI be perfectly suited for this? So maybe Gretchen, you start, and then Amelia, maybe tell us a little bit about how you guys are handling things like that. Yeah, I think this is an excellent example of using artificial intelligence to combine those strengths of the human being as well as the strengths of the machine. So, you know, this is a task that professionally we need to do to code and to appropriately represent the work that we have been done. But the knowledge that is needed for this particular task is largely administrative. And it's something, you know, it is uh, the coding vocabularies are huge. They change very frequently. And they're really not something that we need for the hands-on human clinical practice. They're not, we don't need to know a coding vocabulary to talk to a patient about the risks and benefits of surgery for themselves or their loved ones. So this is a great place for a machine to take away, to automate and take away some of those tedious tasks that just make, you know, being a practicing doctor challenging or miserable at times and and to do it better than we can do that as humans. I think if you look at some of the science around how consistently and accurately that humans do coding, they do it very poorly. So this is a place where we can improve the performance of a task that is part of our professional lives, allow us and take away a task that takes away time for us doing tasks that are human like talking to people or comforting someone during a challenging experience in their lives and allow us to practice at the top of our licenses. And this is, at the end of the day, it's become, or we have redefined that it's a true promise of AI, right? There was this maybe 10, 15 years ago, we were misunderstanding, you, you went into this idea of sort of misrecognition of what I could do. But now this is where it's really strengths are. And Amelia, your, your company is really focused on that since the beginning of the early days when you and I were talking about this new project you had going on mm-hmm. uh, when you're just finishing up, you, you told me that you're moving towards this. This coding was definitely your pathway. You, you could see it. Tell us a little bit how, how it's going to play out uh, at Rob. Yeah. yeah, and Gretchen's totally right here, Stefano. I mean, listen, we have to have some empathy with the system. It's trying to control spend and only knows so many ways to do that. And the AI systems, the models, they're very good at having a discrete output and getting an input and training to make sure that you get an accurate code every time. That's a really good problem case for these models. Everyone has something to gain. The provider not having to do that it doesn't have to keep the latest MDM rules or the latest utilization management rules in their head, and they can just focus on the patient. But the system, regulators, Medicare payers, has something to gain just knowing that the codes are accurate from the get-go. And that's really the key right now for us is making sure that there's consensus around the accuracy, right? Because then the fraud and abuse cases, the back and forth, the denials, appeals, the fighting that happens because there's so much money attached to these codes, really can start to calm down. Let's put down our arms. The codes are active and we can rally around that. And that's a lot of consensus to build. 
And that, so it's I couldn't get the direction to go. And at this point, just getting the consensus that we can agree, accurate codes ambiently produced with the right documentation from the room. And then let's get back to practice, I think is the future. It's a matter of time. And I tell you, if you look at the number of FTEs, people that we've hired in the office to just do coding. And by the way, to ensure the physicians code correctly and then send it to the insurer who, having talked to a number of insurers about this, tell me, look, by and large, we're not trying to, we have no interest in stopping this payments. We just want to pay for the right things. We want to make sure it's correct. And for them, they're getting input for the same exact procedure. Let's say it's a um, trigger finger release, but it's written in six different ways from the same office. And they got to figure out how that was, how to code that. And so if only we could just streamline the output from the clinics, like you said, through an intelligent algorithm. My understanding is that on the other end, they'd be more than happy to absorb that, support it, and then give us very rapid returns. Now, that's not just theory. Dr. Barber, who will talk to us tomorrow, he moved to Memorial Sloan Kettering, where he he was able to, as a new division chief, he runs all the ORs, basically. He was able to work with all the surgical services to streamline the way they input their case requests. Their, their denials went down to negligible in a matter of six months. In other words, a pre-authorization, all of a sudden, somewhere 85 to 90% pre-auth, which to us is a complete dream in my current system, only because all they did was to, it's not very techie, to streamline the way they put the case requests and their, their authorization requests were all streamlined. So I can see an opportunity for us to work together in that space where finally, collaboratively, we take a huge headache out of everybody's plate. All right, next 100%. question for you guys is you both, and Gretchen, at a massive level, huge infrastructure uh, builds out as a company, and Emilio as a software provider for a very discrete product, have had to bring AI into the healthcare system. It was always met with resistance, partly because the high cost up front and because the sometimes the, the benefits are not necessarily shared by the same person paying for the product because that's the way the healthcare system is structured. Can you give us some ideas, anybody out there who says, look, I'd like this subject, you know, I want to implement an AI technology. What lessons learned are there at IBM and at Robin, so really at this high level, that you could share with us about how to approach socializing, integrating technology into a healthcare system? AI specifically. Yeah, there are some general, you know, biomedical informatics lessons which seem to be learned and learned again in this process. And I think the most important lesson for me in this field is that this is a team sport. So it is really important to engage all of the stakeholders, including the clinicians whose specialty is being represented the frontline users of whatever tool that you're planning to install. So, you know, it's very often that people who are making decisions about health information technologies are the senior clinicians who may not even be practicing medicine anymore. And the practice of medicine changes so quickly that, you know, largely based on regulatory pressures, that what it is like to be on the front lines interacting with today's technology, today's electronic health record, Um, And the pressures that you are under just change so rapidly. You also need to engage, as you just pointed out, the people who are ultimately paying for the tool so that they understand the benefit. And then the technical people, the people who have the technical expertise to actually build the tools, build tools that function appropriately with the clinical data that they are given and function appropriately within the clinical workflow. And I think the engagement needs to be throughout. I know that my experience as a surgeon with technical expertise has been that I am sometimes brought in as a subject matter expert too little and too late. 
So, you know, the tool has already been designed and months have been spent on implementing something. And you will look at a tool and say, gosh, this isn't something that solves an actual problem in clinical right. medicine. Or if it does, it will never work in the way that you have designed it or or positioned it. So I think being multidisciplinary, multi-specialty, and all stakeholder engagement needs to be from beginning to end. We need the ideas of the surgeon in practice for the innovation, for the pipeline. We need clinicians involved and actual users involved through product design and development. And then we need those teams on the ground implementing things into clinical workflow. And each clinical setting is very different. So that needs to be taken into consideration. I've seen a, a figure that 40% of the budget for digital innovation should be applied to socialization of the process. Should not be an afterthought. Emilia, a couple of minutes for your answer. Then actually there's some questions I want to get to in the Q&A. So what are your thoughts from your end? Yeah, super important question. The thing that we start with is, why? Why are we deploying this? You know, what is the intended outcome of the uh, AI? There's lots of excitement about, like, let's do something in AI. And every time on the front lines when we're talking with healthcare organizations and groups, it's, what are we hoping to achieve? And we need to make sure that that gets written down so that we know we've hit it. And that really leads to number two, which is building trust. What is this track box thing going to do for me? Can it deliver? Is it going to be accurate? So that trust building does lead to, I think, what Gretchen was saying, which is the consensus. What we found is you have to include the patient. You have to Mm -hmm. include the executives and the practice admin. You have to include the staff, especially in kind of the work we do. The downstream administrative staff, they have to be included 100% then the doc, you are not going to deploy anything into the exam room without having the docs bought in and it being built for them. So those four folks, we go into every practice, every setting, making sure that they know why they want this and then that they have a voice in the process. And an important point that you made up front is that, yes, you have to devote some of your budget to socialization, but if you have the stakeholders engaged on the front end, you will have less change management to do if you have done it through the process. You'll spend less time and energy having to get their buy-in if they were involved in the decision-making and the creation. So there's some pushback around coding being automated from the very first healthcare intelligence group. I disagree somewhat vigorously and the suggestion we can disconnect the clinician from the coding process. Coding is a substrate for right-sizing utilization. It's a way to enable that. So a couple of thoughts on that? Yeah, there's no question that there's an important part the clinician plays in coding. Medical decision-making is the clinician really thinking through what's needed in practice. The bigger kind of question for us is, should the provider have to keep all of the rules of billing in their head, taking the space of focusing on the patient, maintaining eye contact, thinking about the latest clinical guidelines. And I think we can all agree, providers focusing on doing the best they can at the top of their license for the patient and less distracted by the different prove-it challenges of billing is a good thing. Gretchen, quick question for you about AI, just to clarify. If my hospital is from the San Francisco in Delhi, who's just down the street from me, so he says, look, if, if the AI model was built in New York for their infection rate, how's it going to impact? How's it going to be accurate in my hospital in California? Um, I think that's a really important point that, you know, as I mentioned in, in my talk, I think anytime you change settings, um, you need to 
rethink or retest whether your models are going to work. One of the things that we really advocate for and are working toward is having things like AI fact sheets that give you your underlying assumptions and any limitations around which the models were developed. So, you know, understanding any restrictions on the bias, you know, or, or on your data sets or any assumptions that were made about your algorithm that are necessary for its performance. And I think that it is important whenever you, you change the application setting that you revisit, what were those assumptions? What were the data on which this, that this model was trained and to retest your performance and make sure that it'll work? Yeah. I think that's usually, yeah, the model's there, train it on your data set, and then it should put out. Okay, one quick question. The dark side of AI, it shines a bright light in dark places. <laughs> and the question is, how will it affect litigation in the medical field? Is this going to be a plus or a minus? We got 40 seconds, quick answers. <laughs> gotcha, I think, you, go you know, this is something that it can go both ways. I do think that we are increasingly being burdened as physicians to have at our fingertips information that we can't possibly keep up with. So there is one paper published every three minutes in Medline, and it is AI that can do process the large volumes of, of information and bring them to the forefront in a way that humans can. So I think that these are AI tools are those things that can help us manage the overload of information. And I, I know, you know, the regulatory issues are complex. The medical legal issues are complex. I think we may have to come back for that one. That's a tough one. Medical legal and regulatory. We both talked about is regulatory got to get in the way of this stuff. Okay, well, thank you both for joining us. I'm going to let you go and get back to our rest of our scheduled programming, so to speak. On behalf of all of us at DocSF, the Digital Orthopedics Conference in San Francisco, thanks for listening and for joining our community. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review and tell your friends. If you're interested in joining our team, participating, or being interviewed on DocSF, please let us know. If not, please join the revolution and listen up for our next podcast.